Let me ask you to take your Bibles, if you have them, and open to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you're a guest, we're so glad you're with us for this study. My name's Lloyd Shadrach. I'm one of the teaching pastors along with Rob Sweet. As we move back and forth between our congregations in Brentwood and and, uh, Franklin, you'll see uh, each of us week after week. Uh, We are coming out of perhaps one of the most familiar passages in the Bible. Rob did an amazing job last week as he took us through the time for this, a time for that, time for, you know, that, that we're so familiar with, uh, just even culturally. Um, <clears throat> Solomon does what he does best, and he, he ponders that statement, there's a time for this and a time for that, and he, he pulls the thread on that and um, uh, goes, goes deeper than just the surface level. We'll see that a number of times through the book. Now, <clears throat> as he moved through that, um, he introduced... Uh, what is one of life's um, ultimate conundrums. And and when I say that, a conundrum, I think most of us know what that is. Some may not, and so let me me remind us, a conundrum is a a mystery, um, it's a puzzle, but a conundrum is unique in that it's that mystery or puzzle that seems unresolvable. Uh, Let me give you an example that you know, we have a son that graduated this year, and, and, and he faced this, and many of, of you did when you graduated from college or high school, enter the job market. You go into the job market, and you remember having an interview or going somewhere, and, and they would say to you, uh, this is fantastic. Obviously, you did well in school. I'm a hard worker, et cetera. Uh, we'd love to hire you, but you don't have any what? And what do you want to say? Because uh, I got to have the job to get the, uh, you give me the job, I get the, you know, it's, it's a conundrum. Like, well, what do I do then? Because I got to have a job to get the experience, et cetera. Well, this is what we're going to see in our text today, this conundrum. Rob introduced it last week as he <clears throat> grabbed verse 11. Look in your Bibles at verse 11. It says, God, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their hearts. We introduces the conundrum I want us to wrestle with. You see, every person on the planet has eternity set in their heart by God. What did that mean? Well, eternity, uh, the Hebrew thought is time goes this way and then you can't see past it, but there's something past it. And it goes this way, you can't see past, but there's something past. And so there's a sense to which in every human being, there is a longing, I could say a yearning for for forever, for for the never-ending, you see, within us. And yet... That yearning is in a body <clears throat> that doesn't last long. What do we do with that? Why put that yearning in me when I won't be here that long? <clears throat> and we live with this tension. I'm going to unpack that a bit. Now, rather than bury it and just kind of go, yeah, that's a problem, it's a challenge, and go on, he actually pulls the thread and he goes deeper. So I want to look more deeply at this this conundrum within the human heart. And where he goes, this is what I said earlier, he goes to a pretty morbid and dark place. And we're going to need to put on our, uh, apply our best hermeneutic, our best principle of Bible interpretation to really understand what he says and not misinterpret it nor misapply it. There's three paragraphs we're covering. He started with that there's a time for, there's a time for, and this is a continuation of that, okay? These three verses, you'll see this time reference come back up. I've got it broken into three parts, it's three paragraphs. We're going to talk about the fear of God first. This is verses 12 to 15, the fear of God. 
And then he's going to go to what I'm calling the absence of justice. <clears throat> There's an absence of justice. It's not there. He looks deeper, and we're going to grab verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, and he's going to say there's an abundance of oppression. You see those two opposites? There's an absence of justice, but an abundance of oppression. That'll wrap up our section. The fear of God, the absence of justice, the abundance of oppression. Let's start with the fear of God. Look in your Bibles. I'm going to read these passages. Uh, He begins, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover... That every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. Let me say here, 12 and and 13 are simply a recapitulation of the carpe diem passages. Remember two weeks I talked about, two weeks ago I talked about these passages where he begins, there's nothing better than, it's like, well, if this is what it is, there's nothing better than this. And and it's true, and there's nothing better than this, to eat, to drink, and and say, you know, my labor's good, and, and there you have it. And he, this is the second of uh, five that we call that carpe diem passages. He says, I know in verse 12. And then he says something in verse 14. I also know this. Follow along. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. And there's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. Now, verse 15 is a challenging verse. That which is has been already, and that which will be has already been. Now, I get that. You know, he's referring to there's nothing new under the sun. But here's the challenge. For God seeks what has passed by. I will tell you, no one is sure what that last phrase means. I'm not sure. I think it could mean God, there's no past to God. He sees the past. He sees the future. I don't, it, doesn't ref, it doesn't trouble us on our interpretation or application. I just want you to know that's one of those, I'm not sure what that means. And I'm not going to go very deep into it other than what I just told you. Don't know what it means. Uh, verse 14 is one of the clearest passages on God's sovereignty really in the Bible. When I say God's sovereignty, it's so foundational to our faith. I want to pause and not assume everyone, we all know what it means. You know, God's sovereignty in its simplest terms is this. God is in control. You can't get any more basic than that. He's sovereign. He rules. He reigns. He's overall. God is in control. But there's a second phrase that we, that we, we put on that, and that is God is in control of everything. Of everything. You notice what uh, Solomon says in this passage, everything God does lasts forever, so, so God, God's, God's reign and sovereignty is forever. You can't add to it, you can't take away from it, i.e., it is what it is, you can't change it, you, you can't add to it, take away from it, it's complete, it's whole, it's eternal, it's immutable, i.e., it's unchangeable. God is in control of everything. <laughs> you recall that Rob, when he took us through these passages before, there's a time for this, a time for that. The point, men and women, I want to remind us, is not there's a time for you uh, to plant, and then, and then you get to decide there's a time to uproot. It's not there's a time for you to, uh, to, to have war, and then there's, <clears throat> you know what, now it's time for you to have peace. It's not our choice. Everything we read in 2 through 8 Birth, death, 
plant, uproot, kill, heal, tear down, build up, weep, laugh, mourn, dance, tear apart, sew together, love, hate, war, peace. Those are God's choices, not yours and mine. We don't read that and go, yeah, that's what I do in life. I choose when and I choose when. No, you don't, no, nor do I. God in his sovereignty, <clears throat> because he's in control of everything, chooses these times in your life, in my life, and in this planet and in this world. Uh, Lisa and I were in uh, Little Rock uh, two weeks ago. We went to a celebration event for a former boss of mine, Dennis and Barbara Rainey, and hers. We were there at Family Life for many years. And uh, when I, we got the invitation, and, and he has a huge, they, have, they both had a tremendous influence in our lives it was to honor them. <clears throat> but my first inclination was, I don't want to go. And it's not that I don't love them and want to honor them. <clears throat> it's that the years I spent in Little Rock were awesome. They were some of the best years of my life. I moved there in 1983, right out of college. Uh, I was single, and then at least I met there and married. But, but my years in Little Rock also have some of the hardest p- parts of my life. And like, I don't like to go back to those places where there's those bad, hard things. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But the reality is what? <clears throat> My years in Nashville, Tennessee have been awesome and awful. <laughs> you know, it's anywhere you go, you've got that good, the bad, <clears throat> the ugly, uh, the beautiful. You know, it's all mixed together. And it's a reminder, thank you. It's a reminder that uh, life, you see, God, Romans eight twenty eight. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. See, God does what you and I cannot do and cannot even fathom because I cannot tell you how he does this. But he takes the good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful, and he says, it's all under my reign and rule. Now, what this does, according to the text, is God says, I'm sovereign, you're not, and he shows us this so that, verse 14, we will fear him. Now, I didn't see that coming. Like, God, God shows us he's sovereign so that we will, I don't know, worship him. It's, but what comes out is, Solomon says, I see it's this way so that man will fear God. Now, the fear of God can be confusing because there's no simple definition of the fear of God. It's, it's, got, it's kind of multifaceted. If I may, I'm going uh, uh, to reach back to Luther, who gave us some categories that help us understand the fear of God. You know, this is one of the most common commands in the Bible. Fear God, fear God, fear God. Uh, Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom, is the fear of God. <laughs> we need to know what this is. Luther described it in two categories. He said there's servile fear and there's filial fear. I'll explain this. Servile fear is the fear of a prisoner uh, toward his uh, jailkeeper who is brutal, unkind, malevolent, evil, harmful, beats him. You know, it's, it's terrible. And that is a servile fear that the prisoner would have for the jailkeeper. But then he said there's a filial fear. Filial is uh, Latin for family. It's a family fear. Now, here's what he described and what he means. It's the fear of a child... <clears throat> It's the fear a child has of disappointing their parents. Let me go deeper. It's the fear that a child has when he recognizes or he or she recognizes mom and dad hold life for them and that their security is in mom and dad, really, and, and they know that mom and dad love them unconditionally. And it's not a servile fear that a child has toward a mom and dad. It's a 
Can I say this? It's a healthy fear a child would have toward a loving mom and dad. It says, I, I fear ever disappointing them. I fear doing that which would harm them because they love me. Do you see that? That's the fear of God. Now, I want to take and give you two statements that, that build off of that and I think can give us a pretty strong handhold on the fear of God. What are we gonna, how are we going to define the fear of God? I heard this when I was in college and it just stuck with me. I'll offer it to you. I have before. I'll start with this statement. The fear of God is the wholesome dread of displeasing God. There's two words that don't go together well, do they? Wholesome dread. Well, it's the fear of God is the wholesome. It's healthy. It's right. It's righteous. It's true. It's pure. It's lovely. It's good. It's wholesome. But it is also a dread. It's that, it's that I don't ever want to do that. It's a wholesome dread of displeasing God. That really captures this filial fear, right? But I also want to add this to it. It is also a holy, H-O-L-Y, awe of God as he's revealed in the Bible. It's a holy awe of God as he's revealed in the Bible. It's important I say as he's revealed in the Bible because it's not a holy awe of God of man's making or people say or people's opinions or whatever. It's to take the Bible and say, this is God as he's revealed himself. And I will tell you, I do not believe you can read your Bible, especially your Old Testament, and not at some point go, I don't get him. He's beyond me. I don't even see how he could do that's not God, how can you do that? That doesn't, you know, that doesn't seem right. Or, wait, he spoke and created the heavens. Is there a God who could speak and create all? There's a sense to which if we take God as he revealed himself in the Bible, we would stand back and go, you know, that holy awe. So holy dread and a holy awe is the fear of God. And that fear rises out of a recognition that God is sovereign over all, such that men would fear him. Solomon goes further. In the next few verses, he's going to uh, dig a little bit deeper, and he uh, uncovers some things in life that are, that are just wrong, <laughs> that, are, that are difficult to hold, and it's going to create this tension in us. You'll see it as I go. Look at verses 16 to 22. In fact, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read it because Carthy read that middle section of our verses. I'm only going to take verse 16 because he starts here. He says, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. Um, how is it? Here's the tension. How is it that God is sovereign such that we would have a holy dread of displeasing him and a holy awe of his perfections and mystery and goodness? And then we look at life and we go, but life is all messed up. How can God be that and life still be this? Is he sovereign over that too? And he looked, first of all, at the courtroom. He says, there, I looked in the place. The place is not just anywhere. I looked in the courtroom. Let's take the Supreme Court, the courts of the land. He took the roof off. He looked down and he noticed that in the place where there should be righteousness, right? In the, the judges of the land, there was wickedness. In the place where there should be justice, there was wickedness. And Solomon, as a judge himself, was taken aback by this. 
in the place, in the one place where everything should be right and just and true, he said, there's wickedness. These judges are making false judgments. I am so grateful, as are you, I believe this, that we live in a country, you all, where we have a judicial system that's still standing and that works, where guilty people are pronounced guilty and evil is punished and restrained and righteousness is upheld. And yet we're, we're, we're foolish if we don't also say we live in a country where the judicial system doesn't work. The, the courts of our land, their judges are making decisions 100% contrary to God's truth and righteousness. It happens every day. Some of you have been caught up in the machinations of a legal system that which, and you know, I'm not throwing the lawyers on the bus, Josh, at all, but just to say, that ain't right. The, the guilty go free and the innocent are are judged guilty, and it's not a perfect system. That's what I'm saying. How do, how do we, see, the tension is this. How do we eat, drink, say, you know what? Labor's good, and this is my life from God. How do I do that when there's injustice? I, I, can't, I can't live my life that way. You feel that tension. He goes further, <clears throat> And he says that the injustice, it's again strange how he comes up with this, but he says, you know, I looked at this and I thought, you know, that injustice, it's really showing man, God's using it to show man that he's nothing but a beast. (laughs) That's a slap, isn't it? God God uses that to show humanity they're they're nothing but beasts. Now, we've got to be careful how we understand this. He's not saying there's no distinction between animals and human beings. He couldn't say that because in the context of the whole of Scripture, we understand that God created humanity in the image of God. He does never say that he created animals in the image of God. <clears throat> so he's, he's not obliterating all distinctions. What he is saying, he's saying, you know, there's a commonality here. I, Solomon walked around and saw dead animals, and then a week later they were dust. And Solomon walked around and saw dead people, and a week later they were dust. And he said, wow, what's the advantage? I mean, animals die and go to dust because that's what they were made from, and men and women die and they go to dust. What's the advantage of being a human being? Breath in this context is ruach talked about this before, the ruach of life. It's the breath of life. It's the breath of God that animates things. It's why things are alive. Um, He says, when a man dies, who knows? Does his breath, does the life principle go to God is his picture? Who knows? Does the life principle of an animal just go back to the dirt where it it began? We know the story of redemption. Again, we're going to stretch ourselves beyond the text to take the whole text and know Genesis, that man was created with a soul. We know that humanity made in the image of God possesses the immaterial part of our being called the soul that lives forever. The Bible never says that an animal has a soul. It doesn't say it. 
I'm going to call a time out here because I know some of you are concerned now about something that's on your mind. Uh, will my pet be in heaven, you know? My answer is I don't know. I don't know. Um, we have a dog, Pearl, we love dearly. You know, you get a pet, it's part of your family. We have a cat named Ray. Uh, Pearl is going to go to heaven because I've led Pearl to faith. Okay. Ray, the cat, like all cats, resists. Have you ever, you know, cats are resistant to the gospel. They have a lot of defenses up. So I'm just going to say, I don't know about your pet. Here's what I would say is, you, you know, I, I say I don't know because according to the Bible, I can't say for sure. Now, I want you to think for a moment. Think for a moment. What passages of the Bible can we go to that would, that would cause me to say, you know, I, don't, I can't say no is what I'm saying. No, I can't say no, your pet's not going to be in heaven. Why? What would be some verses you would go to? Some sections of scripture? Yeah, yeah, was there a lamb in the line of the lamb? And how about going to Genesis 1? God created the heavens and the earth, and he'd created what? Animals. There are animals in the, in the garden, right? So we know animals, it's not like animals can't get, get near God, right? So um, I don't know, you know, about yours. Uh, with that, all, uh, <coughs> all joking aside, there is an absence of justice that flies in the face of, of God's in control of the times, but there's an absence. How can God be in control and there be an absence of justice? If God was in control, everything would be just, so we have this tension. He goes on, it gets worse. He said there's an abundance of oppression. Real quickly, look at verses 1 to 3. I, have, I looked at... Again, at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. And he thought further, and he went on to say, this is dark, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. You feel the weight of that. He goes on to say, it would be better to not be born than to see this lack of justice. And then he he gets deeper when he says, and the uh, abundance of oppression. And you would have to bury your head in the sand to not recognize today In this world, in this community, there is an abundance of oppression where those in power take advantage of those with no power. If we went on a global scale, you took at the refugee crisis around the world, look at places where hunger, look at places where dictators rule and they abuse and harm their people. I mean, it's real, y'all. It's true. Those in power harm those who are not in power. And Solomon said, it'd just be better not to ever see it Not to ever be alive, it's so bad. I want to say this about this. When we read that, we we must not read that and go, well, the Bible says it's better to never have been born. That's not what the Bible says. It's what Solomon says as he looks around the world, investigates it, apart from God under the sun. Yes, it's what Solomon says, but we know the whole Bible says God created life. 
That's to go in the direct face of God in Genesis 1 who created life and all that he is and created man and woman and breathed the breath of life in them. You cannot contradict that. Uh, you know, there were some high-profile suicides here uh, last few weeks, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. And I want to say, you know, you could, some could take these verses and go, yeah, they did that because of this. And I'd say, well, please know that's never the right answer because that's not true. It's not better to never live than live. God would have, God, you know, some, see what I'm saying? God created life. You can't go against that. And as someone who struggled with depression in my own life, and some of you have as well and, and, and do, and and even had suicidal thoughts, it's not that uncommon, you all. It's, that's, suicide's never the right answer. And don't ever base it on the Bible. And don't ever, if you ever hear a voice that says, I'd be better dead, that's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's not, it's not, it never will be. It's a voice that says, I, I need help. And, uh, and we certainly want to help. So, uh, really, really weighty. D.A. Garrett here in his commentary captures Sol- what Solomon's trying to say in this, I believe. He says, quote, oppression and injustice fill the heart with bitterness and make it impossible for anyone to live according to the practice recommended in verse 11, which was accept one's lot in life with contentment. No one can pass through the cycles of life, there's a time for this, a time for that, with serenity while under the oppression of corrupt power. See that tension? You can't live, you can't be content with life with, with oppression and evil. Let me summarize the passage in a sentence. I'll say it a few times. The, the message is this. Fear God for every tick of the clock and every event on earth is under his sovereign control. Even though right now there is an absence of justice and an abundance of oppression. I'll say it again. Fear God for every tick of the clock and every event on earth is under his sovereign control. Even though right now there is an abundance of an, an absence of justice and an abundance of oppression. I think the most important words in that statement are even though right now. Even though right now everything's not right. In fact, there's a lot wrong. Uh, how does a person eat, drink, and know their labor's good? That it's a gift from God when when things are so bad. That's, that's the conundrum. How do I live this way and yet I know things are so bad? Now, I'm a, I'm a visual learner and some of you are visual learners, so I want to give you a visual right now. Uh, if you're an audio learner, you've got your share. That's 30 minutes of talking for me. <laughs> so now I'm going to give you a simple illustration and I hope this is helpful. It's very simple, but I think it can help some of us put this together. We're answering the question, how do I live with this conundrum of life? Now, when we apply our text in any scripture. We always want to apply it in the context of the whole Bible. And this is, I'm going to take you on the, in, within the context of the whole Bible. You know, when God created the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he placed a man and a woman in a garden, uh, that was the way life was designed to be, whole and complete. And within God's whole and complete creation in the garden, do you understand, man and woman were in relationship with God. No distractions, no Uh, breakage in that relationship. They were in relationship with one another, perfectly naked and unashamed. And they were in relationship with the creation and the animal kingdom. 
this. It was awesome. This is the way it was meant to be, and it was meant to be this way forever in the Garden of Eden. Now, what we know is that Adam and Eve decided, and there was a choice that they made that is a representative choice. See, Adam and Eve perfectly chose how you and I would have chosen. And they chose and said, I think there's a better way than living in faith with God, trusting God and his word. And they ate of the tree that he said, don't eat from. And in that moment, everything, you just picture it this way, everything blew apart. (laughs) Creation blew apart in a sense. And so now there's this, there's distance and separation between man and God, between man and wife, and between humans and creation. It's all just split apart. And from that moment, we're still living in it, by the way. From that moment on, uh, humanity has lived with this tremendous tension, if you will. For when they made that choice, Attention was introduced, and that's what I want to show you with this picture, that we moved from the wholeness of the garden and no separation to a, what I'm going to say is a, a tension, and this is an you know, eternity loop. It's one way to see it, but I'm going to call it a polarity loop because now every person lives with this within your heart. We already said it. God said eternity in your heart. And the problem is, now that God put eternity in our hearts, the problem is now I live in a body that's temporal, and I can't separate the two. See, it's called a polarity loop because a polarity loop has two opposites that can't be separated. Think about a battery. There's a negative end and a positive end. You can't get any more opposite than negative and positive, but they're together, and that's how the, you know, the battery functions. <clears throat> this is your life and mine now. See, this is a, uh, Ecclesiastes uh, 3, 2 to 8. Where, where you look at these things and we know now that there's, now, now versus the garden where there's no death. Death didn't exist. Now we go, oh, now not only death exists, so now I've got to live with life and I've also got to take death with life. And so if I looked at these, these times for, a time for, so there's a time for birth and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to throw stones, collect stones, a time to embrace, to shun embracing, a time for war, a time for, you see this, it's just all these back and forth opposites, and you go, this is crazy, I can't do this, and truly you can't. Now, this is the heart of a Christian and a non-Christian. It doesn't matter whether you're a believer or a non-believer. If you don't know Christ, haven't trusted Christ, what most people do is they look at their life and they go, you know, life is terrible, and life is life, and you know, I'm going, to try and, I'm going to try and live my life in such a way that, <clears throat> that the part that's bad gets really small. So I'm going to go do this and do that, and hopefully this will... <laughs> Life's awesome! There's a little bit of bad. You can't do this. You can't get rid of this. The Christian says, this is life. God is God. Now it's life and it's death, and the two are inseparable. But the Christian listens to the eternity that God has placed in their heart. And they begin to pull that thread. And God in his sovereignty will open the believer's eyes to go, you know, that 
there is eternity in my heart and there is more to life than what I see. And God opens your eyes to the gospel of Jesus. And you come to understand that Jesus Christ is God's son sent from the Father who lived the perfect life you couldn't, who died the death you and I deserved, who was buried and rose again. See, God, see Jesus, overcame, Jesus overcame death. And he rose again. And so anyone who trusts in Jesus and says, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, was buried and rose again. See, that person is now, the Bible says, born again. The Spirit of God lives in them. And so now they live in time. So, so you, you still live this way, but you live in time with the sure and certain hope that it won't be like this forever. And we can actually live in time with these tensions in the power of the Spirit. And I can live my life and go, there's so, there's so much good in my life. God, thank you. It's a gift from you. And yes, there's some stuff in my life that I wouldn't wish on anyone. I wish it weren't so. But you're sovereign and you're in control of all things. And I fear you, O oh God, for you alone can cause all things to work together for good. And you will. And we have this longing in our hearts. What do we have a longing for? What do we long for? It's echoing in our souls. Eden, the garden. We want to get back to the garden because that's what we were made for. It's right. But when Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of the garden, God placed a sword on that garden. By the way, you can't get back to that garden. God said, no, but I'll tell you where we can go. We can move forward through a cross to a garden in our future. You see, this is the whole story of the Bible in three movements. Because this, you see, is our future. The Bible calls it the new heavens and the new earth. And you know what the new heavens and the new earth will be? It will be, it will be the garden redeemed in right relationship with God forever, with one another forever, with creation and the animals forever This is what our hearts have always longed for. Why? Because we're made for it. When you trust Christ, uh uh-oh, when you trust Christ in time, you know, in time, you don't trust Christ and go, everything's back the way it should be. Uh Uh-uh. You trust Christ and you actually begin to understand things are worse than I thought they were. You actually have more insight into life. But we live with it. We can hold the tension, the polarities, because of faith in Christ. And we know that this is our certain and future hope. This is where we're going. And in a way that I can't comprehend, but the Bible makes clear, is this is more glorious than this could ever be. Lord, are you saying it's, it's better than the garden? Yes. Yes, in God's sovereignty for this, having come through this and the cross, God is more fully glorified. All that he is is more fully glorified because of Jesus' blood. And this is our future. I'm going to ask the worship team to come out. We're going to end with a song, which I think would be so appropriate. But I'm going to ask you to... Consider for a moment your own application. Can I do that? Um, Three things to consider. 
one. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, why not today? Today. You, just, you tell God, I, I believe, God, you, you do love me and you sent your son and he died on the cross for my sins, was buried and raised again. If you believe that and confess that with your mouth, from, from your heart, God saves you. All that Jesus did is credited to you. Your sins are forgiven. You're clothed in his righteousness forever. Would you do that today? You can. Second application for some of us may be this. You have been living with this tension, and maybe this illustration, I don't know, maybe this kind of unlocked it for you to go, that's why life is, that's why life is so, eh, 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 because this is the way life is, and maybe you need to go, Lord, I, I need your spirit to help me hold these tensions, because I'm not holding them well. I'm getting off in one and I'm getting off in the other and I just need to rest in your promise that this is my future and that this is time now and God, you're working all things together for good. Maybe you need to ask God's help for that. And the third may be this. I just it crossed my mind that some of us may need to take these moments this morning and confess our sin. What do you mean confess our sin? I mean this. Confess that this tension has produced in us an anger at God and we've been raging at him. And by the way, that's not a bad thing. It's better to rage at him than deny it and act like everything's okay. David raged at God and, and you've been maybe going, God, that's not right. That's just not fair. And I'm telling you, he can take it, give it and, and let that pour out to him and let his loving kindness embrace you. And maybe you need to confess that I've, I've, I've been mad at you, God, and I've been calling you unjust. And, and, and you now go, but you're God and I'm not. And I want to confess that, oh God. And I don't understand this. I say this a lot and I don't even like it. But it's life. And it won't be this always. And by the blood of Jesus Christ, there is a future that is whole and complete. And if I ever wonder, God, in the midst of this, when death comes, when it shouldn't, it never should, but when bad things happen, if I ever wonder, God, are you good? I need but look at the cross of Christ. That's the definitive statement, okay? The cross, that God is good and he loves us. Let's stand together. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, stand together, and I'm going to ask you to do business with God, you yourself. We always say, well, so what? How do we apply this? Would you talk to God about how he would have you live this truth right now? Let me give you a moment to do that. Father, we do not want to leave this place without living what your word says, not just knowing it or hearing it. 
So by your spirit, enable us to confess, to cry out, him to trust you for the first time. And Lord, may we in these final moments lift our voice to say some words that are true and that remind us when we were alone in our sorrow and dead in our sin, when we were lost without hope, with no place to begin, Lord, you, you made a way. You loved us before we ever loved you. And in Jesus and his death, Death itself was arrested and life began. May we, may we sing from hearts that have been adopted, no longer orphans. May we be mindful of your grace so free, your endless love. May we exalt the cross in Christ who by death overcame death to give us life.